0: me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, as we continue our study on the glory of God. I hope I can finish it here uh, this evening on this particular lesson. I'm not sure if I will be able to for the sake of time, but uh, as we study this here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, on the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The grand reality is of God. And His eternal existence, absolute supremacy, are the central fact of all the universe. I'm going to read several verses. And again, I, I want us to get this idea that everything we do, Every thought that we think, and I'm preaching to myself on this, is to bring God glory. Matthew 5, 16, a little bit of review. Uh, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. John fifteen eight. 8, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye also, so shall ye be my disciples, he says. Romans fifteen six. that ye may with one mind, In one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. As we think upon this, all to the glory of God. And what is this glory of God as we look at it is that the, the truth to remember is that the satisfied and stable believer sees God as first of all supreme and delights to have it so. And there's nothing showing up there. Yeah, well, yeah, well, albeit. <laughs> all right. So as we continue on this, that the glory of God is His supremacy. Think about this. And the glory of God is that he is first. There is no other. I mean, the very fact, if you think, in his first, supremacy, it's like Mount Everest. It's the tallest of all the world's mountains. Yet, Mount Everest has been conquered, yet Christ has never been. Now, as we think about this, falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, man was created to bear witness of God's unique excellence. That's his purpose. But when Adam fell, his darkened nature put himself first rather than God. He fell short of a purpose. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, and it is precisely because God's people in recent years, this might seem rather heavy, but we have come upon a Christianity that is rather malnourished. It may be that, as we look at this, that he fell short of pur- his purpose of reflecting and enjoying God's unique excellence, his glory. This is what man fell from. I mean, in the whole aspect of Mount Everest, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norke, they, they did come to the top of Mount Everest. It was March 10th, 1953. They had to make a 188-mile hike. Uh, from Kathmandu to the base camp of Mount Everest at 17,000 feet. He and his fellow climber there, uh, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, as they would get there, they would come to the top of the mountain on March 29th, May 29th, excuse me, two months later, with a view from the top of the world. As we understand and as we live in the glory of God we will begin to understand the heavenly vision, the heavenly view that Paul had uh, as he was the penman there in the book of Ephesians. Now, one of the things we have learned that God is glorified when he is seen as supreme first. What does it mean that you and I are created for God's glory? How do I translate? How does this affect me on a daily basis? How does this affect my mind? In Revelation four eleven, a favorite verse for many, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, and for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The first thing one created here, God, the first one, created all things for his pleasure. Now, here's some questions that you might be asking as you think about that. How can I bring God pleasure? What is it that brings God pleasure? You know, we talk about some of these more lofty, uh, higher ideas. Bring God glory. Serve God. What does that mean? What can I do that He cannot do better? What can I uh, make that He cannot create better? You know, and, and oftentimes we feel our own our own wickedness, our own sinfulness, and you think, Lord, what can I do? How can I, as a limited individual, be able to delight you? Here's an illustration for you. Many people have dogs. We have two of them. And our dogs, they delight, especially Sadie. Sadie is our black lab uh, cocker spaniel, we think, and she's our rescue dog. She loves, to be ple- she loves to know that she's, being, that she's pleasing us. Now, I have to think of myself, if you want to think about it, how do I give God glory? I could think about it myself as one of God's pets. Now, I, I realize there's quite a bit of limitations in that, but just follow along with me for illustration's sake. You could think, how about, rather than saying you're one of God's pets, you could say you're one of God's sheep. You will find that in Scripture. As a young boy on a farm, there's a vast difference between animals and humans. We understand that. A dog may sleep at the feet, curled up at the foot of its owner. Our dog, Sadie, sleeps at the feet of our our daughter. And as soon as she gets up, Sadie gets up in the morning, heads for the door, ready to go to the washroom. The dog is immediately on on her feet, and desires to beat Eliana to the door. Now, that little, the dog, Sadie, our dog, when you tell her, good girl, I'm telling her that she is pleasing to me. Both man and dog are pleased. When I think of my position as a servant of God, as a pet or a lamb, I can fetch his paper, if you would, much like a dog would. But I get saliva, like a dog goes and fetches a paper. It gets saliva on that rolled up piece of paper. It might even tear a portion. And as the dog brings the paper back to its master, the the master says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it amazes me that God, much like you and I, that as we seek to please God by our actions. An eagerness to obey Him. We don't ever do it perfectly. But He looks at us. He looks at our heart. He looks at our endeavors to be pleasing in His sight. And He is delighted in our endeavors. As the dog would bring the paper. As you and I bring things And desire to serve God, desire to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. You know, we kind of mess things up like a dog putting its mouth on a newspaper. Because I am seeing God for who He is, that He is first. Now, our two dogs are not great retrievers, but there is... I know in our one dog, as we try to do tricks, or we tell her, good girl, and uh, we'll say, roll over, and she's so excited, and then we give her a treat. She likes the treats. God has created you and I in his image. He's created us the capability to understand, to some degree, what is happening in my relationship with himself. A dog is not aware of all that. I can stand in awe at God's patience at all my flaws. I can stand in awe at His forgiveness of how I fail Him. I know that I'm limited, and so are you. I know I'm defiled. And yet, in Psalm 23, 6, as the great shepherd, the Lord our shepherd, I can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to be... And I want the world to know that He is the best. He's first. He's supreme. He's he's without equal. In such a way, I am showing that I'm created for His glory. We can glorify God as we acknowledge and enjoy His firstness. Meaning, let me give you several illustrations on this. I'm demonstrating His firstness in our decisions. The decisions I make ought to be with the intent of putting God first. Much like I remember back when I was dating my wife, and even now when our daughter's not with us many a times, we'll go on, when we do go on a date, not very often, should be more, but as we go on a date, or we, when we were dating, I'd get out of the car, go around, open the door, and let her out. I'm putting her first before myself. The treasonous activity, the treasonous depravity of our sinful natures naturally pulls us to consider ourselves first. This was the sin of Lucifer. He put himself first. I'd like you to look with me in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Satan mandated that he was first. He demands what rightfully belongs to God. And he would take with him a third of the angelic beings. God created another race, mankind. Created with the capacity to fellowship, created in God's image, created to join with the unfallen angels who would acknowledge and enjoy God's beautiful excellence, unique excellence. Adam fulfilled that primary function with Eve in being created in God's glory until, until Eve listened to the serpent and joined the rebellion of Lucifer, and Adam willfully, willfully ate of that fruit. She was deceived, he willfully ate of it. Now think with me about this initial temptation there in Eden. Adam could have glorified God in that temptation if his response had been something like this, Eve, I hear what the serpent has said, but it is contradictory to what the first one, what God has said. Our Creator is certainly first in wisdom. No creature, neither I nor the serpent, can match His understanding of what is best. If He was to say, Eve, we have everything in this garden that we we need and want, why would we go against what the Creator has made? And Much like you find in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The first one has good reasons for His commands. Eve, I don't know why. I can't pretend to know why, but I know that he knows what's best. No matter what the serpent says, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow God. Here's the temptation, and if he didn't, but if he would have said, God, the first one, he knows what he's doing. I spoke on this several months ago, but serpent implied that God was withholding something. But God is also the first one in goodness. The serpent told Adam and Eve that they wouldn't die. How could the the first one not be also first in truth? Your eyes shall be opened. If Adam was to say, if I were to listen to the serpent, I would have to deny that the first one is indeed first in all these things. I certainly don't understand, but I will not betray the first one, our creator God. That's what he should have done. Obviously, we know he didn't. If he would have done that and resisted the temptation, he would have said, I'm going to glorify God. He would have made his decision to put God as supreme in his life. For all have sinned and come short of the glory Of the firstness of God. We fail to put God first. We fail to give Him the excellence, the trust, and the obedience that He rightfully deserves. It is at this acknowledgement. As we find in Exodus chapter 20, they're speaking about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's saying, right, for all of sinning, come short. Come short of the glory of God. We haven't made God first. All of us, it's a daily battle. Don't be confused by the word love in Matthew 22, 37, and 38, right? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. God-like love is self-sacrificing that seeks to benefit another. God-like love seeks to put God first. Now it has the element of affection, we understand that. But it is a demonstration of a denial of me first and God first, and putting God first. In First Chronicles twenty nine eleven. Look with me here. First Chronicles chapter twenty nine verse eleven. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. I mean, David understood it. The health. And the happiness of the creature and the delight of the Creator rest upon the creature's worship of God as supreme first of all. And there is none else. It is totally unrighteous that it should be in any other way, in any other view of nature, other than God supreme, God first. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all. All they died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And rose again, again, and an admonishment, and a response, as Paul is teaching the Corinthian believers, listen, live unto him who died for you. Don't live for yourselves. Again, the glory of God the only acceptable response that we can make to God is in repentance and live for Him, which is an obedient lifestyle. The world speaks much today about psychological disorders. But the great disorder is that man should place himself first before God. This is what man has done. The greatest disorder is that any man should place himself first before God. That is a disorder. That disorder will lead to problems. It is a mutiny of the creature, mankind, against God, the Creator. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a And the penalty for failing to put God in his proper place is death. Mankind was willfully banished by God to the ship of his life while the creature stands self-confidently at the helm, usurping God's rightful place as first in command. Man stands in defiance of God, saying, you will not tell me how to live my life. We must reflect his firstness in our meditations. Our decisions will acknowledge God's unique excellence. That's what they ought to do. And unless our minds are constantly dwelling upon his preeminence. Preeminence is seen in his word. Adam couldn't argue himself back into reality about what indeed is right and first if he has made... The invisible things of God are constant focus of his meditation. We must, our hearts drift back to me firstness without daily and sometimes hourly reflections on the grand reality of God. We must reflect, as we spoke about two weeks ago, on the invisible things of God. I must. Focus on who God is. I can't see God now. Seeing the invisible. Looking at the hope set before us. I focus when I get my mind off of the invisible things of God and only on to the here and now, I begin to become me first. We must declare God's firstness in our evangelism. I'd like you to look with me at Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 3. Psalm 96, 3. Declare his glory among the heathen. His wonders among all people. The very thing we see here, as the psalmist pens these words, declare His glory among the heathen. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. I mean, he has over and over and over again declared God's glory to the heathen. No one should withhold God's glory He is to be praised. He is to say, hey, God, Jesus Christ reigns. This is the heartbeat of the missionary heart. We have missions conference starting on Thursday night this week. The heartbeat of the missionary heart is that the heathen would know that God reigns and they have an accountability to him. Evangelism is a natural response of a heart that sees God as supreme. In Psalm 21.13, Be Thou Exalted is the language of a victorious spiritual experience. A.W. Tozer sums up what we have been looking at and reverently reflects on his words as we close this portion of our study, but it's a little key to unlock the door to the great treasures of grace. What ought to happen is that the seeking man must see God as be thou exalted, right? Lift up God. Religion, Catholicism, Mormonism, Hinduism, JWs, you name it, ism and schism. It elevates man as having the ability to somehow merit his way and work his way into the graces of God. Be thou exalted is I can't do it, Jesus did it. I'm coming to him. We are made in God's image. And how frequently do I not just take God as my all? God was my original habit. God was mankind's original habitat. And our hearts cannot but feel at home When we enter into that ancient and beautiful abode, if you want to be true to yourself, glorify God. The idea of being true to yourself is a me focus. But if you want to be true, you got to put God first. God is preeminent. And that is his rightful place. Let me read a quote for you, a man who is not rejoicing in the reality that God is supreme, the first and the greatest, and who is not ordering his own thoughts and decisions accordingly is living a life with a severely flawed worldview. They live out their lives in Christian mythology. And I spoke about that. Well, I think if I do this, it'll make God happy. I think if maybe this bad thing happened in my life, so this could happen, and I'm the center of all that's happening there. It's not that these events happen in my life that God could be put first, that the heathen would see that God is first, that the Lord reigns. And when we fail to glorify God, God resists us. We must ask ourselves, I've got several questions to ask you here, uh, just as you think about this. First of all, a little concluding thought here further. Seeing God as first and living in the light of that reality is the initial step toward vibrant, joyful Christianity. Here's some questions I want to ask you. Have you come to a time in your life when you recognize you were living for yourself and you were broken by the realization that you're robbing God of his glory? What did you do about this? Do you realize as you and I live our lives, as we interact with people, and try to have people see how smart I am, or how smart you are, or how, how uh, uh, I'm going to let that person know my thoughts. That I am robbing God of the glory that He deserves. The whole thing of forgiveness is that God is glorified. The whole thing of these conflicts is because I'm putting me first, I'm not thinking about God's glory. Churches have conflict and have strife when me first is at odds with God first. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I want you to think about the areas of your greatest temptation. What aspects of God's nature would you be calling to mind during those temptations that would help you to make the right decision? When temptations come, maybe there's one thing in your life that, more than anything else, that that comes your way. And I mean, this temptation is something that many times, maybe not many times, but sometimes you find yourself falling. I mean, if you're going to fall, it's this particular one temptation. Number three, how can you bring pleasure to God today? When you go to work, you're there with your family, how do you show that God is first? How do you show that you have a relationship with Him? What place does the reading and studying of God's Word have in your life? How important is it for you to just spend some time with God? What have you seen recently... In your devotions of the invisible God, that has altered how you view life, how you've handled life. In the past, how has your view of God been wrong? How have you had a Christian mythology? Right? As I, going back to the discussion on that, the Romans would, they were fearful of their gods or their concept of whatever these gods were that they believed in, but they were trying to appease the gods by their actions. So again, they're in charge, as they think, of their destiny before the gods, trying to appease these deities, hoping that they've done enough to merit the good graces. And so many Christians, this is where legalism comes into play. Legalism is I'm trying to do enough good things to be seen good by others, to be seen as a solid Christian by others, uh, but at the same time trying to do enough for God that He would accept me. Who is first in that scenario? I mean, I can talk right, I can dress right, I can listen to the right things, but it can still be me first. Legalism. A transcendent worldview. Transcendence is a theological and philosophical term that means that something is, exists above and apart from the material world. Jerry Solomon, he says, worldview. I don't know much about him, but he says worldviews act somewhat like eyeglasses or contact lenses. That is, a worldview should provide the correct prescription for making sense of the world. The world. Uh, Just as wearing the correct prescription for your eyes brings things into focus. In either example, an incorrect prescription can be dangerous, even life-threatening. A worldview should pass certain tests. Number one, it needs to be rational. Number two, it should be supported by evidence. And number three, it should be satisfying, comprehensive, uh, and a a comprehensive explanation of reality. It should be rational. It should not ask us to believe contradictory things. Supported by evidence. It should be consistent with what we observe. I mean, you look at the, the complexity of this world and you have to come to the conclusion there is a God. There is a creator. In satisfying and comprehensive reality, you know, explanation of reality, it ought to explain why things are the way they are. Number four, it should provide a satisfactory basis for living. I mean, it should not leave us com- uh, compelled to uh, borrow elements of another worldview to live in the world. I mean, that worldview is not, I've got one eye, you know, one glass of, of this prescription, another one of this one, and there's two prescriptions in the same eyeglass. I mean, it's just, it would make for a lot of problems. The worldview is how do I see life? How, do I, how is my life filtered? How do I perceive of certain incidences and how do I think about them and all of this? When, I, when I'm facing opposition from a lost world, when I'm facing opposition from those that don't know Christ, I'm coming with an understanding and, and uh, you know the, the mindset, the worldview, this person doesn't know God. So their worldview is them. It's not God. This gentleman, Solomon, further states that worldviews answer the following six questions. Why is there something... Rather than nothing. How do you know that you know? How do you explain human nature? How do you determine right from wrong? What is the meaning of history? What happens to a person at death? Modern, and then he would go on to say, you know, modern, uh, you know, modern Christians ought to be uh, have a worldview of the past and the present, and deism, nihilism, and several other false beliefs. But having an understanding, modern believers should be somewhat acquainted with these false views. Now, I would say if you know God and these false views come upon you, you're going to know how to counter them, so know God first. But we must see the invisible. I must see that God must be first. Living in the reality of the supremacy of God. That God is transcendent. He's in heaven, but yet He's there with us. He's separate, he's separate from His creation. He exists above and over His creation. Spirit, he is the author. He is also transcendent. He is, he is the author of life. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has given man a sense of a transcendence. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. The eternity is that there is more than this life. If a man is only thinking about it until I die. There was a guy today in the hospital. He said, I'm okay with dying. I've come to peace with it. The gentleman that has cancer. I met him there at the hospital chapel today, but had an opportunity to begin to talk about the Lord, and he'd seen some Christians that were living for themselves, and it created quite a bit of problems. As Christians, we must live biblically. We must have an eye. On the transcendent God. What has happened toward the end of the 18th century is uh, a longing for the transcendent that has produced romanticism and rationalism. Rationalism is a theory that reason, not spiritual revelation produces the only basis for understanding. I can rationalize life. I I see with my mind, science is all rationalism. I can see it, I can evaluate it, and how I perceive of it through my worldview, that is life. And so it's the basis for understanding and handling life, and it removes the supernatural rationalism. It's the theory, the idea that man founded the world by itself. And, and man, you know, man finds the material world unsatisfying itself. And so what happens here, you have rationalism, I can see it all, but man gets uh, eventually going down the rationalistic thought, life becomes just meaningless, and so this meaninglessness gives rise to romanticism and emotionalism, and we see this in our day. How do I give uh, highlights to transcendent themes of beauty, order, and and nobility? I mean, I remember when I was in English class back in university. I had a professor who was rather odd, uh, but it was always like, oh, we were reading these books and we're trying to find all these hidden meanings and all this other stuff into it. It was kind of wacky, but anyways without God to inject humility into the world view, what it does in this romanticism is it produces a snobbishness of high culture in some, and in others a diminishment of, a, of what people see in the world. But there's a primitivism. And what this does is it extols the virtues of man that man is born Good. It pr- promotes the goodness of man. Man is only bad because he, you know, he had a bad environment growing up. It teaches the idea that evil comes from structure and tradition, and we must get back to nature. Kind of an even a pantheistic way of life. I mean, the, a lot of the thinking that we have today in this, what, the, what is. Pr- Pervasive throughout the world is there's no accountability. There is no acceptance of responsibility for bad actions. Romanticism verified what was the soul's quest for something beyond the material world. There has to be more, and so we need to find it. Thus gives rise to a lot of the new age and everything else that comes. Lord Byron, called the model romantic, wrote, The great object of life is sensation. To feel that we exist, even though in pain, it is this craving void which drives us to gaming, to battle, to travel, to intemperate but keenly felt pursuits of every description. You go to a, someone goes to a concert. Oh, I just felt so good. You even get into Christianity, this romanticism. Oh, it was such an experience. It's all about the sensations. Romanticism attempted to restore a sense of transcendence, but... It didn't. It is the same craving void for a transcendent reason for existence that drives the interest in the spiritual pursuit of today's New Age movement, Neo Paganism, which is New Paganism, the Signs and Wonders movement of the Charismatics, spiritual box office hits, and goddess religions. I I mean, it is unbelievable the amount of stuff we're seeing today in the promotion of people as goddesses. Unbelievable. I mean, you find it in, I've, I've seen it in music and sports and all these sorts of things. They highlight, I mean, they're talking about these people as goddesses. Even recently, I was listening to this particular podcast. There's a, a gentleman, he's a former Navy SEAL, and uh, uh, they had a little Zoom meeting or whatever you could watch or YouTube or something, and so I watched it, and this one guy was asking this former Navy SEAL, who's done very well for himself, he's a consultant for high-profile you know, high businesses and such, and uh, this young man, he asked him, he said, oh, you're like a god, He said, well, and the, instru- the guy he said, no, I'm not, but there's this thinking that somehow you've gone through all these experiences, and so you have some enlightenment that I don't have, and you're going to impart it to me. There's a lot of parallels with today's restless pursuits of the passions of life. We who have the truth have lived as if it didn't matter. We have a God who is first in reality. There's a gentleman, Kenneth Meyer, he closes his book on popular culture with a well deserved uh, indictment on churches in general. He calls it a lost opportunity. He says in the two decades since the cultural collapse provoked by the 60s, there have been numerous laments from a cultural remnant about the loss of a sense of transcendence, absolutes, and human dignity. We've lost, and I would say we've lost absolutes. Things are relativistic, they're uh, subjective, but they are not absolute. He goes on to say, many intellectuals are chafing under the yoke of oppression from ideologies that, that see all cultural expressions as political, expressive only of interests of class, race, and gender. There's a mass push against patriarchy, right? Dads and leadership in the home, they push against us. He says, what a shame that these individuals, many of them agnostic or atheistic, could not look at the church and see in its cultural expressions as well as in its teachings a living testimony to a culture of transcendence, a dynamic cultural life rooted in permanent things. That gentleman's right. Why is it that people can't look into churches and say that you and I live with a view on the transcendent God? He's in heaven, but he's also with us. We have lived as if truth has not mattered. There are excuses for why things. We just dealt with the last three weeks on Sunday nights with the very issue of marriage and divorce. Circumstances have dictated what is right, and we skew the scriptures to fit our conformity to life. Many Christian homes, parents, will filter, they'll they'll bathe their families in a worldview of the world. Uh, they take out the profanity, sure, and, and some of the uh, you know, take out some of the rock music and the immorality, but there's still a bathing in the world. So the children are seeing worldliness minus all of the excesses. A biblical transcendent view must dictate our view of death, recreation, ministry, work, education, worship, music, art, history, science, entertainment, study, business, love, and a thousand other issues. The reality of God's supremacy means that He has the first and He has the last word on every issue. What does God think about what I'm going to do? I want to filter everything through this book. Final words and I'm done. Everything is evaluated in quotes. Not on the basis of this is this or that blatantly evil, but does my view of and participation in this or that truly show to the world and testify to our God that he is supreme above everything he has created? Asking you the question tonight, are you doing everything for his glory? Does what you're doing show that you and I were created for his glory. As you think on these truths, the reality of God's supremacy is 1 Corinthians 10.31 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Declare to the heathen the glory of God, right? Psalms 96, as we read. That's what God's called us to do. This evening as a Christian, I just want to challenge you with the thought, how are you putting God first in everything? How do you deal with conflict, forgiveness? Right? Forgiving an erring brother, forgiving an erring sister, if you hold on to it, you're telling God, me first. it is about time that we as believers get past me first and get to God first. That I get to that. And when we think about these truths, it will fundamentally change us. Declare to the heathen the glory of God. I trust, as we come to the time of invitation with heads bowed and eyes closed, that you would think about that. When you're done praying, feel free to look up and we'll close in a word of prayer this evening.